Hello, this is JFL, John Francis Leader, and welcome to the Body, Mind, Self podcast. So my guest today is Professor J. Scott Jordan. Scott, great to have you here. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. So I was introduced to your work um, quite a while ago by uh, by Dr. Fred Cummins here in UCD, who spoke highly of you, having met no. you, and then followed up on some of, some of your <laughs> yeah. adventures. Very kind. And... Um, I liked it, I think it would be an understatement, I liked it a lot because mm. you uh, hit upon some topics, I suppose, a lot of people are maybe afraid to talk of notions of self <laughs> and interesting <laughs> concepts, but right. you know, you, you, you didn't do so lightly though, you, you, yeah. you explore them in some depth and try and make sense right. of them, but I think what I saw there was a lot of topics that in my own work have come up quite a bit, and mm-hmm. it's always great to hear other people talk about the topics that you're doing. You and don't feel alone. Come at it with some seriousness, <laughs> exactly, a bit of a group therapy session sometimes when there's more than one person in the same boat. Right. For anybody who doesn't know you, uh, right. your, your work, how would you introduce yourself to a broader no. audience? Who are you? What do you do? What are your interests? Sure. Uh, I'm a cognitive scientist by day. Uh, I'm a philosopher by all time. Um, so um, I started off in psychology wanting to be a adolescent therapist. Mm. I had a science of perception course uh, as an undergraduate. And I became much more interested in how we're able to even walk through a door mm-hmm. than the problems we can have when we do so. Uh, so I became very interested in the science, science of perception. Uh, my guiding principles were always uh, consciousness and volition. Yes. So um, when you read anything I've written now, it's still about solving those problems. They seem to be recurring <laughs> themes, all right. They don't go yeah. away too easily. No, 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 they don't. One thing that struck me immediately in, in reading your writing and also just talking to you too or hearing you speak is, uh, is storytelling. You like to tell stories in, in what you do. Now, as a fan of experiential learning and mm. applied therapy, uh, narratives and you know learning mm-hmm. that way is something that stands out a lot to me. Uh, mm-hmm. where, where does that come from in your work? There's more stories than a lot of <laughs> theorists would include. Um, well, I, to be honest, I do write some what people would call fiction. Mm. Um, and, uh, when you're writing, you don't really ask yourself why you're writing. Mm. You just write. And it's one of the few processes I engage in that just sort of sustains itself. Mm. And so, uh, I don't ask myself too much. Um, but when I, why I would talk about stories in my work mm. as a, as a cognitive scientist, as a philosopher is, uh, because I believe we are stories through and through. Mm. Uh, one of the things I like to tell my students is, you know, when you're walking down the stairs, talking to your friend, and you put your foot out because you believe the floor's there and it's not. There's mm. another, there's uh, yet another stair, and you start to fall. And you get yourself, um, you stop yourself from falling. What I like to try to show them is that um, they're actually telling themselves a story unconsciously about right. what their foot was supposed to experience. Mm. And um, most of the stories we tell ourselves or most of the predictions that our brains are continuously making mm. are well outside of our conscious awareness. We become consciously aware when they fail. Right. So um, what I like about this then is for me, I like to empirically investigate and then philosophically discuss uh, this, what I would call constellation of unconscious anticipations that we're Mm. continuously generating, which constitutes the background against which any event can be uh, foregrounded as a stimulus. Right, right. So So if I understand you, these kinds of assumptions we're making in in, in what we do, 
And, and these assumptions are interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, certainly I see this therapeutically in working with yes. clients that, right. you know, the degree to which the difficulty yeah. is present in any given moment, yeah. it's fairly minimal, really. Right. It's this anticipation of this expectation around in some yeah. way. And, uh, you know, I think when we look at it historically, I suppose, I like to think sometimes we're kind of descended from paranoid people. Those of our ancestors who <laughs> right. assumed it wasn't a problem when it was, right. they're probably not around to tell probably the tale. Not. Those right. of us who assumed there was an issue, who thought around the corner about the yes. issue there, yeah. even if it wasn't their worst case scenario, what they were a bit stressed. Right. And in olden times, a bit of extra adrenaline, you probably worked down a mine anyway, or you worked out, you know, exactly. growing things in a farm, you'd wear it off yeah. pretty quick. Right. Now we're kind of moving less, but we're thinking more more than ever before. Oh, yeah. That anticipation seems to be a real big Paralyzing theme at the ourselves. moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Out of action. Well, what would you yeah. say about that, and particularly in a modern context? Oh, well, those are great those are great questions. I, When I think about these kind of things, I look at what it, being an adolescent, and yeah. um, I look at you know managing the social life I managed, mm. which was the people in my face. Right. Right. Uh, and if I wanted to talk to someone outside of my immediate context, I did it at home on a phone connected to the wall in front of my entire family. Right. 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 Um, so sustaining my identity was, or the, my ability to have an identity outside of my immediate context was very minimal. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, of course I could read books and such, but I mean to actually engage another person. Mm -hmm. Um, now that constraint is basically been eliminated. Mm. And now, um, when I used to tell my kids when they came home from school, uh, you've been around these unsophisticated minds all day. Okay. <laughs> it's my turn. Put those phones away. Okay. Because the idea that some person can text you at 8 PM in the night. Right. And right. suddenly put you in a bad mood. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous. Mm. Right? Mm. So, so uh, what's happening now is that there's increasing pressure on people to actually uh, con uh, constrain the social influences on them every moment of the day. Right, And right. Uh, on the one hand, for me, it's taxing because I didn't grow up with it. Mm. Uh, but for people that are growing up with it, I think they just develop their own norms. Mm. Uh, but I, sometimes I get concerned that it might be uh, more difficult to be a self at peace. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can say that about myself because I didn't grow up in that world. And mm. I'm trying to live in it. So I'm not sure mm. what it'll be like for them, but um, I I do believe that they have to learn mm. when to not let others in, there when are, to turn the phone off. There are a yeah. few very important concepts in their technology, the idea yeah. of the virtual in an extended sense. Yeah. Um, back to, I suppose, one of the most primary ones, though, that uh, were the terrifies people, self. Mm. You, you seem to do something interesting with self mm -hmm. in that a lot of people go so relational that mm -hmm. they lose the self altogether mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. they go the other direction completely. You, right. you, you, I kind of like that I see both there. I've mm -hmm. always kind of liked self, but of course not in the way a lot of people would use the word self, right. which is far too restrictive and restrained, right. mm -hmm. kind of an extended self in some way. Right. How, you know, to, to, to take a question that I suppose people have pondered for thousands of years right. and to try and brutalize it in a very brief period mm -hmm. of time, what is self in the way you think about it? Um, well, um, let's just say at a, at a minimum, there are two ways, two ways to talk about self. One is what mm. it feels like and what we might call a first person perspective. And, and the other might be a third person perspective. Um, from the first person perspective, uh, 
in some of my work and in uh, empirical work and in some of the theoretical writing, um, I try to describe the self as our ability to reorganize what we're doing in the world at any given moment. Okay. So we're sitting here having a nice conversation right now. If my foot suddenly started to itch, mm -hmm. then myself would be all about scratching my foot. Mm. Uh, and I'd lose track of the conversation and have to have to come back. So a lot of people in cognitive science try to uh, conceptualize the self as a higher order monitoring system. Mm. Um, but if you look at where our sense of self is and where it goes from moment to moment, it's it's our ability to reorganize what we're doing right now. And it jumps from feet to ideas in a matter of 300 milliseconds. Mm. So the sense of self, then, I think, then, is this sense we have of, of, of not being able to, but the sense we have when we reorganize what we're doing. Okay. And uh, so it's what we do to ex experience not self is to put ourselves in situations where we either don't have to reorganize what we're doing in a very calm setting mm. or in a setting with a lot of other people so that their movements and thoughts tell us what to do mm. and we don't have to work at it ourselves. And in both of those cases, what you're doing is decreasing the need for this system to reorganize what it's doing. Right, because right. You, you, there seems to be this capacity to kind of marshal all of these mm. processes, mm -hmm. isn't it, that are at play yeah. and, you know, like a, the, the captain of the ship in our analogy or something like in our therapeutic right. work, that we've all these impulses and the the, uh, the currents can be pushing or pulling in one direction or the yes. winds can be too. Right. And it's not even a good or a bad thing, interestingly, because they may serve no. us well in going to a particular destination, but they may not in another moment as well. Exactly. So there's sort of oversight over that in some way. No, I very much like the captain of the sea. I think when you look at life as an ocean, <laughs> the, the idea that you're ever going to turn in one direction and get things right is just kind of silly, right? Uh, you're going to do what you can in one time scale, and another time scale is going to be perturbed. Right. And so then we come to look at the human condition as a, as a contradiction, as opposed to certainty and clarity. And, 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 yeah. an, in, and an interaction. Continuous. And that's the point. Yeah, because exactly. I, I think that puzzles people, because in a very practical sense, when I'm working with somebody with stress or anxiety or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. There seems to be the sense in which, do I have control or do I not have control? Yeah. You know, which is it in terms right. of taking ownership of where I am and bringing yeah. myself forward? Right. But, you know, when you extend that uh, captain uh, analogy, you start to see that there's actually a few things going on, isn't there? Because the captain has no control at all over the weather. Right. And to the degree they actually give up control over that and stop trying to change the weather by will, yep. they're actually in a better position to allocate that to other things they do have control over, yep. like rigging the sails, turning the, 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 the wheel, etc. Right. Um, and then the kind of indirect things, which is, is, is what you're talking about when you, I think when you're thinking about looking forward, mm -hmm. like being at the port that you're sailing to. Mm -hmm. So we have no control to just choose to be there, right. but we do have a kind of an indirect control over it in that yeah. if we sail well in the right kind of direction, it becomes right. more likely that we'll achieve that. Right. So it seems to be that navigation. Yeah, the, I like the idea of navigation, continuous, ongoing. And then, uh, then the idea of surprise, right? The idea that when things work out as you didn't predict, or even as you right, unconsciously right. were predicting, uh, the way we experience our expectations, we don't experience ourselves generating them, we experience their violation. Right. And then we often experience the violation as something being wrong with the world, right? Um, being able to, I would argue, metacognize a bit, mm. look at this surprise and ask ourselves how much of it is due to our own expectations, and then analyze what it was I expecting. Why was I expecting that? It's not that that helps or anything like that, but it provides more degrees of freedom for what mm -hmm. might happen next. 
Um, so, um, yeah. I, a few words I took from one of your pieces, maybe you could expand on uh -oh. a little bit. It ties on there <laughs> is, um, is uh, uh, conscious will constraining action towards producing outcomes. Yes. How would we translate that for somebody who uh, doesn't use those words that often? Oh, fantastic. Um, so in psychology, um, we've developed a model of the beast that basically has thoughts causing actions. Right. And though no one would ever say, I meant that in an efficient cause way, mm. the implication is there that I have a thought and an action follows. And what we're finding is that it doesn't work that way at all. Mm. And because of that, a lot of people are saying, oh my gosh, we don't have conscious will. What I say is, well, conscious will was never supposed to have an efficient cause relationship with action. Mm. Uh, when you're walking along the curb, right? And you're you know, trying to keep your balance. Um, the visual system is not what's keeping your balance. Mm. The visual system, as you stare down the curb and keep your gaze fixed, that is stabilizing or constraining what the lower level body movement systems or kinesthetic systems are doing. Right, right. And the kinesthetic system is, fall, is uh, basically addressing its own degrees of freedom at its time mm. scale. And what, the, what we call perceptual system mm. is doing is on top of that, it's not telling the system what to do. It's mm -hmm. saying it's creating a constraint, and this system then deals with the degrees of freedom around that constraint. Gotcha. So thoughts and perceptions don't cause actions. What they do is reduce the degrees of freedom right. or constrain Very nice. yeah. where these kinesthetic systems are going to try to solve problems. And can we yeah. think of self then as as doing that constraint on various different levels? Because there seems yeah. to be this kind of general sense of who I am in my life and roughly where I'm going, my yeah. sense of career and relationships yeah. and identity, and then more on local levels, like walking down the street yeah. and the ways in which we do it. Is yeah. that the same type of thing do you, hap do you think happening on, on different levels? I, I think yes. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, thoughts... Um, thoughts ter serve to constrain perceptions in the sense of, you know, a while, about an hour or so ago, whatever, I had the thought of being here. Yes. And that constrained the perceptions I had for that half hour as I tried to get here, mm -hmm. right? And as I looked down the street, that constrained what my action systems did. But n my thoughts weren't causing my perceptions, and my perceptions weren't causing my actions. Mm -hmm. We had a multi-scale system that was sorting out degrees of freedoms at different time scales. Mm -hmm. And um, my sense of self, my sense of what I was causing, jumps up and down that hierarchy all the time as a function of what the problem is. Now, mm -hmm. if there is no problem, then I just daydream, right? right. But if there is a problem, like, oh, yeah. I you know, move my foot and I hit the curb and I trip, then I, you know, all, mm -hmm. all, you know, all hands on deck. I make sure that I don't fall, and then I look around socially to make sure no one's yes, laughing at me, yeah. and then I, you know, get my phone out, make sure I'm in the right way. But um, so my sense of self is is just constantly jumping around, and um, there there are moments where we feel like you know I did that. Um, yeah. um, but we, you know, when I ask my students, for example, you know, people tell us we don't have conscious will, but I said, how many of you remember the day you made the decision to come to this university? And a bunch of them raised their hand, and I say, okay, so that was about eight months ago. Mm. That event has completely constrained what you've experienced for the ever since you've been here, yep. right? Yep. That's pretty robust, That's right? A system's yeah. ability to say, over the next four years, I will constrain myself in this space. Mm -hmm. So free will is not about conscious will. It's not about causing actions. It's about constraining possibilities. And um, 
we very much have it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we very much have it. <laughs> and it's not an illusion at all. Right now, people, I'm sorry, go ahead. And how do, how, how do people respond to you when you say that? Because uh, <sighs> it, it does seem to be kind of in vogue to, uh, to, to, mm. to try and get rid of self. Uh, but right. yeah, even when I push certain people on this, they'll often still allow for it, I suppose, in some way. But mm. it's just that there's a lot of confusion, I suppose, around the term. Well, I think, I think people are um, demanding too much efficacy. Mm-hmm. And um, what I absolutely love about our legal system is that it knows all this. Right. Right? It, it, the legal system doesn't expect there to be an efficient cause relationship between thought and action. Mm-hmm. The legal system says, okay, you had a knife in your hand. It ended up in that person. Sure. Okay. So... First, it establishes that series of events. Then it mm. says, okay. Then it says, well, how premeditated was that, right? Yeah. Man. And so you guys were talking in the kitchen. The person was standing against the door. Someone barges in. Oh, that's okay. Well, that's manslaughter. Or, mm. you know, you know. Mm. Oh, well, you got mad at each other? Okay, that's second degree murder. Mm. Oh, you thought it out ahead of time? That's first degree. And so what the court's doing is assessing the degree of prospectivity or the degree mm. of anticipation and, and the constraint, mm. you know, of this person's life ending. But the, they don't care if it's an efficient cause relationship, sure. right? You can get, you can be found guilty if you convince someone else to murder someone else. So you didn't even do it. But our court system is pretty sophisticated and recognized. People can get stuff done a lot of ways. So something, despite its pragmatism, that the, the, the court system has problems with, an area that you point to a lot is a, is a kind of a relational, ecological way of thinking about... There aren't these selves or individuals just existing in isolation. Right. That the, 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 this real interaction in, in yeah. even in a, the, the most deep levels of our identity. Yeah. And uh, you know, we can take the legal example as being tricky there because yeah. did he do it? Did somebody mm. else act as an accomplice to it? Right. Or did he do it completely by himself? But he had earlier experiences <laughs> that you know he couldn't have not done it on that basis. Yeah. No. So whether we're talking about yeah. the legal system or anything else. Could you say a little bit about that? For somebody who tends to think of the self or the individual in a very crystallized sense, mm. how can we kind of think about what it means to be relational in that way? Um, I Well, it, I think that's, there's quite a bit of cultural difference in, in how much people are demanded to, to, be, to believe they have an efficacious self. Right. Uh, I think... There's a lot of pressure put on people in my country, the United States, to believe that they are in charge mm. of what they do mm. um, and believe that they're doing that because of their own choice. And I believe there are other cultures, we may call them more collectivist cultures, where yep. there, aren't, there isn't so much pressure put on the individual to consume a narrative of individualism. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, how strongly one believes there's a self that is in control of what they do is rather robustly contextualized culturally. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know if that answered your question. It does. There's an irony, though, we pick up, you, you've picked up in, in your work, isn't there? That yeah. it's, it's this highly you know, collective thing that's mm-hmm. making us believe the individualism. Uh, it's, it, it, you it's, know, isn't it? It's, it's this very <laughs> social individualism. And, you know, you've, you've, you've exactly made that point in a few is. ways, and it's, it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I call it the myth of the Marlboro Man, right? And right. the idea is if you ask the Marlboro Man how he knows he's so rugged and independent, he will, with no trace of irony, tell you, well, because everyone tells me I am, and mm-hmm. not get the contradiction. Absolutely. And that lack of understanding that contradiction is... Well, I'm just going to say doing brutal damage to my culture, right? People are 
living in situations that they're forced to believe they caused. And um, I, I find that rather incoherent as a worldview. So, yeah. I suppose there is a kind of a, a change blindness. Fish would be the last to know what water is kind of a problem, <laughs> isn't there, with this, that when we are deeply immersed right. in something, we do tend exactly. not to see it. It tends to become quite right. implicit. And exactly. we, we, you know, reality is mediated, I suppose, but we don't tend to see that unless there is something dramatic or out of the ordinary that's, uh, it's that's the curse happening. of anticipation that is that it's unconscious. It is. And when it's violated, you don't experience yourself. You experience the world as how it's inconsistent with your expectation, but it's just the world's just wrong, right? Yes, yes. And yeah. uh, that's the, I mean, that's one of the reasons unconscious expectations were selected is because they work so efficiently, they work so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at the same time, they can deselect individuals. Mm. It hasn't deselected the species yet, of course, but it can deselect individuals. And there's room for a bit of a, a kind of a battle here, isn't there? Because, you know, even if we have an attitude of humility yeah. and we say, you know what, the world, you know, may be right and may be wrong here. There's also a sense in which it could be the other way around too, and yeah. out of just sheer responsibility, we feel mm. the need to take what we think is right and mm. kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, rally around it to some degree too. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that interplay in terms of mm. person and world and world and person? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, to answer that one, I almost have to go to politics, mm. um, and then I would make an argument for the the achievement of democracy in the western culture mm. i see and if i'm going in the wrong way just tell me but there I is see. no wrong way okay. or right way in this in this type of topic area all right well like a politician i listen to your question and i find a way to steer it to <laughs> but um i see and i'm now i'm just uh restating the views of a british uh philosopher Mike Oakeshott mm. and he uh, what he was concerned about writing from the 30s to the 50s was um, he saw a democracy as a major achievement in human culture mm. uh, a sort of commitment to uncertainty and yeah I see what you mean and then therefore arguing since none of us are going to come up with the uber narrative of mm. all truth and reality mm. we're going to have faith in everybody's ability to collectively come up with a solution and uh that kind of commitment to uncertainty is, and then to have thousands of people actually organize themselves around mm. it, is an unprecedented achievement in cooperation. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it's, it, it can work against itself right. when there's portions of the population that want certainty, right? Mm. And then what happens is that as the voice of others becomes increasingly loud mm. through media and such, particularly capitalist-driven media, you can start to dispense certainty with slogans and people can come to have their need for certainty satisfied for slope by slogans. And the, you know, it's very hard to tell people, yeah, we need to have a commitment to uncertainty. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. And it's because it makes increasingly less sense as the volume gets louder in the world of certainty. So, um, what is your sense on the personal level? Of, of what we can do about that whatever about what people will or won't do yeah. what, what, what within ourselves is the right practice or attitude do you feel to cultivate well you mentioned humility uh and uh i'm not uh, for reasons we can talk about i'm not sure if i would call it right but i would yeah. call it coherent right in the sense that uh carrying yourself with us uh understanding that a commitment to uncertainty can come across as somewhat of a contradiction because mm. my my anticipations 
only work because they're full force right sure. from the perspective of the anticipation right it's like a provisional model isn't it in some way they're open to review <laughs> right. as we go along but nonetheless we still use uh, that's the idea is to experience yourself as a continuous modeler right and um the problem is our you know particularly in adolescence there's so many forces trying to tell you what you are um it seems as though there has to be an equal and opposite reaction to state who you are mm. so that you can stay afloat. Right. And um, uh, that's, that's too bad. Right. Uh, I see right. so many kids that come to college and they're so certain who they are. Mm. And, um, you know, I just try to say, I get it, you know. But don't, be, don't let yourself be surprised by what you like, you know. And they say, well, what should I do with my major? And I said, well, you'll be up at some morning, 2 o'clock, writing a paper for a class, sure. and it won't hurt. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because it seems that we kind of, though, can have our cake and eat it, too. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that, that kind of certainty or that position that we crave, yeah. it's okay as long as it's a verb. It's as long yeah. as there's an active sense to it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I don't need to kind of foreclose on anthropology and say I know the world. Right. But I can say I am an explorer. Yeah. And that can give no, me certainty, but still a kind this. of an open-ended space or scope in some way. No, exactly. I am a traveler. Mm. That, that, exactly. You, you can do that. Yeah. And, uh, and then be at home with the stabilities you have to necessarily, gen necessarily generate yeah. in order to be surprised. Absolutely. You use the word virtual a fair bit, and that word can be used in yeah. virtually an infinite number of ways. Um, but but I think that's the point yeah. in many ways, because yeah. uh, obviously when you talk about that kind of anticipation, I know yeah. what, one example you used in one of your pieces is the uh, is the line chasing the gazelle, mm -hmm. and it's anticipating where it will be rather than where it is yeah. currently in that sense. So right. we're always doing that. We're always sort of augmenting in some shape or form what is. Right presumably using past experience right. or just the, the, the contingencies of the moment we're in in some way exactly. to to uh, lead us in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is being highly extended at the moment by technology, yeah. right. um, in, in smartphones, in virtual reality headsets, and, yes. and, and so it continues. Yeah. Have you had any reflections in these kind yeah. of technological developments to augment that? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, first of all, there's nothing unreal in virtual reality and there's nothing unreal about virtual reality i wholeheartedly so, <laughs> agree with you and would like to be validated in that so <laughs> let's let's get that on the table yeah um i will admit that uh, you know in some of my papers uh, earlier papers i used i tried to describe the phenomenon of cognition as what i would mm. call uh, virtual sustainment yeah uh and the reason i did that i was inspired by andy clark's 90, 1997 uh, book on being there and uh uh it's becoming increasingly clear that this big bad thing we call the cortex is actually unbelievably infiltrated by the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be the case that anytime anything's going on in the cortex, it's being primed by things that have happened in the past in the cerebellum. Mm. So Andy Clark referred to this, this feedback that the cerebellum has with the, with the cortex. He called it virtual feedback. Okay. And the reason it's important is because connections between the cerebellum and the cortex take 10 to 20 milliseconds to recurse. Mm. But it takes, uh, it takes about a tenth of a second for activity in the cortex to recurse with events in the world. I see. Right? I see. So when I'm controlling like my locomotion through the world, if I were only able to function at the time scale of immediate feedback, I would not be able to move with nearly the sophistication I can or speed mm. and accuracy. Mm. But because 
my cortex, in this case, my motor cortex is being continuously primed by cerebellum mm. in terms of what I've, how I've moved my hand before, I can actually control uh, limb trajectory at a time scale much faster than that of regular feedback. I see. And as long as the constraints of the world don't change so much that that virtual feedback doesn't yeah. work, yeah. I can function at very, very fast time scales. So in one of the Olympics in the early 2000s, um, on the women's uh, pommel horse, all the competitors were crashing on their knees mm. and they weren't coming out of their flips quickly enough. Well, it turned out that the horse was two centimeters too low. Wow. So that two centimeters revealed the constraints on that virtual mm. feedback, mm. right? In other words, they could generate those flips in the air because they had done it 10,000 plus times. And as long as the pommel horse stayed at the same height, sure. Sure. They worked, but you move the pommel horse just a little bit and it doesn't work anymore. So that's a nice way to show that we can get by on this stuff. Pretty much the world doesn't change that much. Right. right. And, right. and we can get by on that stuff and it hasn't been deselected. Right. Mm -hmm. So gravity's pretty, you know, it yes. works all the time, yes. you know, and it's all there. And so, um, so we, 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 I are, I, some have challenged my use of virtual and mm -hmm. so, I call it abstract event control now, whatever. Sure. But as I said before, getting trying to come to grips, particularly as a student of perception, come to grips with the human contribution to experience. Yes. And the fact that I'm continuously generating the background expectations that provide a context for some event to be foregrounded. Mm -hmm. So instead of the psychophysical model of there's an event out there and mm. I perceive it, and I trace out the mathematical relations between increases in my experience and increases out here, and we think we've done the science, um, I, I think we're completely avoiding all of the unconscious assumptions that we right. just completely make useless by putting someone in a lab and right. controlling the environment to such an extent that those unconscious expectations uh, don't matter. To, so. to use some uh, inevitably oversimplistic terms, there does seem to be this sense of, the experience we're having being physically given in front of us, yeah. like you know, the table in mm -hmm. front of us, uh, or the degree to which I can close my eyes and meditate or visualize the table. Yeah. There's some kind of experiential load in a way, some gradient to which it's there or yeah. not there. Mm -hmm. um, virtual technologies, if we think about it from a technology point of view, whether it's a virtual reality headset or whether it's a book, yeah. isn't it? Yes, do exactly. seem to carry some of that load. Yeah. And it does seem they can carry more or less of it. Yeah. And that interplay seems useful because, I mean, we just need to think of something like trying to train a pilot. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know something that's very close to your heart as well is this meeting of... of knowledge of pure yeah. kind of information on one hand and really the experiential quality of it on the other yeah. hand to that pilot we'd never say well here's a book you know we, we'd say here's a simulator or here's yeah. the real thing in some way yeah. in mm -hmm. martial arts training they, they have a formula they use speed strength stress which is mm. you know, doing it slowly and then quickening mm. it and then yeah, doing it yeah. softly then strengthening right. it and then doing it quietly yourself with a punch bag and then doing it with somebody giving you feedback and people shouting at you while you do yeah. it so this right. sense of some real world interaction Action. Fantastic. For training and education, that degree to which we can play with our expectations, we can bring mm. in the virtual to support us. Mm -hmm. Any any thoughts on that in terms of the future of education? Because there's a lot happening in that space, it seems. There's a lot happening in virtual education. But I don't education. know who's guiding it, if you know what I mean. And well, that may uh, be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, uh, at the it's it's sort of at an evolutionary uh, forward point. Yes, yeah. Um, 
Some, some forms of doing it will be deselected and some will sustain themselves. Um, first of all, it's inevitable, mm. right? Uh, it's inevitable. And it'll change what we think education is. Yes. Um, I'm not one of these people that says the only way to do higher education is through brick and mortar contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm going to perhaps digress a moment, Please. but, um, we, you know, we, we often look in, at, for example, a brick and mortar institution and we, because we go so accustomed to it, we just assume it's the right way to do things. Right, right. And, and because we've had bodies our whole lives and we walk around in the world, uh, doing things, it's just supposed to be that way. Mm-hmm. But in fact, our brain doesn't care at all uh, where it is, as long as it can sustain itself. So mm-hmm. in a lot of my work, I look at the brain, neurons particularly, neurons, neural networks, et cetera, as, as living systems that are organized themselves around the context they're in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, so basically, brick-and-mortar institutions are an artifact Mm. of the context that were needed in terms of what we could do mm. hundreds of years ago in order to constrain the way people develop. And like a lot of artifacts, we, we kind of like the, the fish that grows too big for the tank, or the thing, we, we kind yeah. of feel them upon us at a certain point. They yeah. cease to be invisible when we outgrow them. Yes. At a certain point, isn't it? Yes. And I know that for me because <laughs> in the cognitive science program here, yeah. which is more of an idea than a building. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm wandering between psychology and philosophy and neuroscience it's and computer science department. and all these different yeah. buildings. Right. And I can't settle in one place, which yeah. is very good, actually, educationally, but challenging, yeah. too. Exactly. No, I, I think, first of all, what's nice about that is... That organization is an artifact of the field and what you're interested in. Right. Right. And one could say that you're sort of perturbing the, the norms of the field. Yeah. And um, there will be new stabilities that emerge. That's right. Yeah. And which in um, turn will be perturbed, no doubt, down the I, line. I, well, yeah, exactly. The system is wild. Right. Mm. It comes and it goes. And the work is the question is, how does it sustain itself in this context? And uh, it will do so by generating assumptions, just like any other system has ever had to do. And some of those will make it uh, vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and it'll be perturbed and reorganized. Mm -hmm. So um, um, virtual reality, if that's what we want to call it, is is here to stay. And um, uh, I, I, I do think... You know, when I teach my, when I'm in a class of 30 students and we're talking about the stuff I talk about, mm. um, it's constantly about their lives. Mm. You know, it's constantly about, you know, how many of you know that they remember the day you decided to come here? Mm. How many of you walk down the street and use your cell phone to avoid making, making eye contact yes, with people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and just showing that these small scale things that I talk about in terms of anticipation play it in our daily lives every moment. Talk about them going back to their high school and what it's like to suddenly be in a place that you were before, but you're not the same person. Um, uh, that I, uh, if we, that I don't know how much of that will be downloaded into a virtual reality context. Right. Um, but a lot of it can be <laughs> right. Yeah. And particularly if we're using. Uh, PowerPoint, PESHead, educational yeah, methods, right? Yeah, then true. a lot of that's downloadable. Mm-hmm. And there's actually nothing wrong with that. There are some data to indicate that's a very effective way to get people to know certain concept, concepts, yeah, yeah. Uh, to get to know certain equations. Um, 
so so for some forms of learning it's actually going to be better mm. more yeah. efficient and for others um it'll be a real challenge to to make it work in virtual reality right you know but um it's going to happen right it is there's an inevitability to a lot of these kinds of things well the cost of brick and mortar true right just true. staffing yeah i mean yeah put one person in a room and put them in a cave where they can see 300 people yeah makes <laughs> and a those difference. 300 people can see them and you can have real-time interactions that well, the infrastructure buildup for that would be vastly expensive, but the long-term yeah. savings of not having to keep a building going. Right. I'm just saying it's, yes, it's yeah, all it's true, kinds it's of true. constraints. It's, it's a very practical fact. All, con all kinds of constraints are going to afford its emergence. And um, You used the word wild a moment ago, and yeah. you were about to give a talk shortly on yeah, wild yeah. systems theory. Right. Um, obviously, we're going to cut to that in a moment, so yeah. we, we, okay. we let listeners hear for themselves what that's all about. But mm -hmm. anything you would say about that before we cut to it, any kind of for right. a broader audience, any intro to the talk that you're going to give? Well, you're very kind to ask. Um, when, you, when you hear wild systems theory, it'll sound like a lot of dynamical systems theories that are out there. It'll sound like a lot of complex systems theories that are out there. And for somebody who doesn't even know what they are, right. uh, it, very briefly, how would we kind of sketch what that actually is? Um, I guess one way to look at it is uh, looking at all phenomena mm -hmm. as embedded in multi-scale contexts. Mm -hmm. So, for example, as I'm walking on the curb, right, mm -hmm. trying to keep my balance, um, I'm keeping myself focused on the curb at the perceptual level. My kinesthetic systems are doing all the things they need to do with mm. gravity to keep that going on. Well, at the same time, I know that I have to be somewhere in 20 minutes. Right. So all of that, I would argue, is being expressed in every moment of my being. Mm -hmm. Right. The fact that I can do that for 15 minutes and stop and then go the five-minute walk to get there indicates that during the time I was doing the balancing, I was simultaneously doing yeah, being yeah. somewhere in 20 minutes. So I like to look then at, at behavior or whatever we call what we do mm -hmm. as being embedded in multiple timescales simultaneously and managing events at all those timescales mm. at the same time. So it's much more like looking at something in the ocean, being okay. banged around, trying to keep some stabilities uh, in the context of all the multi-scale phenomena that can influence what you're doing. So it's very wild in the sense that... Um, if I'm going to do anything like reach out and grab this cup, yeah. uh, billions of neurons need to take care of their own problems, right? Mm -hmm. And they need to be coordinated into yeah. neural networks that have to deal with their own problems because sure. they compete with each other. And then all this stuff has to compete to see what gets flushed out of my central nervous system, mm -hmm. right? And all of that, all those different timescales of what I just call work mm -hmm. um, need to ultimately be coordinated for anything to come out of me that looks like skilled behavior. Right, right. And so then behavior isn't something that my arm does. Mm. We're, uh, we can call it that, and we did for good scientific reasons 100 some years ago. But now, with, with what we know about physiology, what we know about brains, the integration of physiology, brains, and archaeology that's going on, we, we're looking at systems that are highly complex, trying to sustain and control multiple events simultaneously, and all the systems involved have to be coordinated. Mm -hmm. So the most wild system, or if that makes sense, mm. but the, the, the healthy, whatever you call it, successful system mm. is the one that has um, the greatest degree of coherence across its systems. I see. 
And then, you know, if some systems, you may have something that goes wrong at some level and it loses its ability to coordinate with other mm -hmm. levels. So you brain disease, a broken leg. Yes. Uh, you yeah. know, you didn't bring your homework home. At some level of scale, something goes on that perturbs that, that level's ability to integrate with the rest. Okay. But all of it is in every moment of being or every moment of behavior. Well, keep listening to hear more about this now in just a moment in, in okay. more detail in the, in the talk. Finally, just to, to wrap it up, because yeah. we, we'll have to get to the talk, um, meaning is something yeah. that, that comes up a lot in your work, which is great. I would uh, feel terribly unauthentic if I let mm. you go without asking you that mm. question about meaning in your own life as you look at your career, yeah. the journeys, the adventures you've been yeah. on. If you think of where you are now and what you've learned and maybe where you were a few no. years or a few decades ago, right. is there any major point that stands out? Any particular mm. learning in your life that you know you give it as advice to other people or to a younger version of yourself? Anything that's really stood out for you in your journey? Uh, don't be shocked by your surprise, and don't don't see it as failure to be surprised. It's actually opportunity. Ah, it's so cliche. You'd see that in a Hallmark card. Sounds good to me, and I haven't heard it recently. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, um, and I would also, uh, don't despair. Because mm. um, uh, despair is, is a situation that will actually render you incapable of doing what you might need to do to get out of it. Beautiful point. Right. So uh, talk to other people. Mm. Uh, simply because... Highly complex systems like brains actually mm. are stabilized by resonating with another one. Nice point. So, yeah. you yeah. know, the talk is the problem solving. You know, we have fooled yes. ourselves because of our rationalism to yeah. believe we're going to talk and come up with a solution. Well, you know, the smart people I know, they just talk. The they feel talking. better and they move yeah, on, yeah. right? Wonderful. So the talking is, the so is because it's a stabilizing phenomenon. Self-stabilize itself through interacting with others. Take advantage of that. Yeah. It's been great, Scott, having you oh, on the podcast. <laughs> and we're looking forward to the talk, which you're going to hear in just a moment. Yeah. If people want to find out more about you and your work, we're yeah. going to put some links in anyway. But is there anywhere particular you would direct people? Um, if they type wild systems theory into Google... You've pretty <laughs> much got that one coverage, yeah? My, yeah, they'll come up with a bunch of my papers. I, I, I like the word wild, and I've actually written a bunch of... Used it as an adjective in a two word phrase that starts most of my papers. Excellent. Um, so they can find a bunch of the papers there. And then they'll also, if they plug in my name, they'll find my webpage at ISU and at my university. And uh, they can look at stuff there. All right. Well, we'll go over to the talk in just a moment. Scott, mm -hmm. thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Total blast. Thanks, Fred, for the invitation. Thanks, John, for uh, the invitation and for the podcast earlier. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure to be here and to talk with you today. Um, let's just jump into it. It's Friday night at the Theory of Mind Club, and three famous icons are getting drunk together. They include Pinocchio, Faust, and the Marlboro Man. And the reason I pick these three icons is because I think they represent issues that psychology is having with the idea of the human condition these days. So what's Pinocchio's problem? Well... Pinocchio's got no strings to hold him down, and he believes that freedom has to do with not having constraints. The reason this is a problem for us in psychology right now is because we found out that free will doesn't cause our actions. And so we feel, oh no, we're not in charge. So we're in the state of believing that conscious will is an illusion. Uh, Faust is getting drunk because uh, his need to, of course, have his books and learning give him access to direct truth or absolute truth, 
is something he figured out he can't get. And in Faust's worldview, and I argue even in our contemporary worldview, we have the concept of knowledge and the concept of living being two different things. And part of the, word, the view that I'm proposing is that living is knowing because living is meaning. <clears throat> and then the Marlboro Man. If you ask the Marlboro Man how he knows he's so independent, he'll tell you, because everybody tells me I am. And he won't get the contradiction. Uh, so it's uh, the idea that what the self is, is this sort of lone cognizer trapped in their own mind. So these are three issues I think psychology and cognitive science are dealing with right now. And the, the view that I'm going to put forward is a way to sort of deal with these things that I hope can make uh, cognitive science's approach to these things more consistent with lived life. So I'm going to talk about what we do, then I'm going to talk about how we do it, and then I'm going to talk about why it has meaning. And the first thing we do is we, uh, what do we do? We make things happen in the world, right? But what's the model that we've been using for a long time to talk about how we make things happen in the world? Most of the views that psychology begins with start with a dichotomy between your organism and the environment. I'm inside here. The world is out there. And in order to get a scientific grip on the relationship between these two, we create concepts such as stimulus and, uh, in my case, response. And we do an entire science looking at the correlation between those two things, and we call it behaviorism. At the same time that that movement is going on, people are also looking at lawful, relationship between, lawful relationships between stimulus events and psychological events or perceptions, and we call that field psychophysics. And neither one of these two disciplines is necessarily or was necessarily concerned with any of the dynamics going on inside the organism. And the reason was scientifically founded. Any observer has access to those, any observer has access to those variables except the psychophysicist who has to believe that when you say that line is smaller than that other one, that you're speaking the truth about your experience. But psychology went along pretty well for quite a while <clears throat> until, so, until some people started to notice or take seriously the idea that the organism has some internal contributions it makes to its own behavior. And we see the rise of the science we call cognitive psychology. Now, the reason I've put these three different fields of study on the same image is to argue that even though they claim to be radically different from each other, they actually share this common view of the organism. That perception is the intake of information from what's outside of me. Cognition is the processing of that information into something complex and useful. And then action is my ability to take that complex representation of the world or whatever we want to call it and use it to guide my action. So the reason I go through all of this is to show that because of this model, we sort of implicitly, implicitly accept it as a discipline, save for some. But for the most part, this implies that my thoughts carry an efficient cause relationship with my actions. In other words, this implies that I have a thought and then I move my arm or make, make something happen. And it, makes, it implies that there's an efficient cause relationship between thought and action. So the idea then is that conscious will cause his actions, and we just move on. However, David Hume argued that our sense of causing things in the world might be just any other form of perceived causality. And what he's making, um, uh, experimental psychologist by the name of Machat, then went on to do a lot of research looking at what are the constraints under which we experience causality. 
So in some of these images, like that one in particular, you will experience the red ball is calling, causing the motion of the blue ball. You're experiencing a chase there. So let me stop that before that starts. So Machat argued that because he could manipulate how people experience causality in very systematic ways, that our perception of causality depends on these three variables. One is priority, i.e., when event A occurs before event B, that's necessary for us to experience A as causing B. If the B event is consistent with the A event, we then experience more causality between A and B. So for example, if this is A and this is B, we experience causality more robustly there than we do in the second case. So when the B outcome is consistent with the A preceding event, we experience more causality. <clears throat> and then the next idea was exclusivity, and that is the fewer A events there are, the more likely we experience A is causing B. What that would mean in this case, if I had a whole bunch of different hands all approaching A, all approaching B and hitting it at the same time, we would be less compelled to feel that any one of those was the cause of B, okay? Now, that, that work's been around for some time, but then, and then, excuse me, uh, Dan Wegner got a hold of it and said, hey, maybe our sense of agency is also vulnerable to the constraints identified by Michaud. In other words, perception of mental causation, i.e. the idea that I'm causing things, is sensitive to Michaud's principles of perceived causality, priority, consistency, and exclusivity. Here's what that means in the conscious will case. I believe that I caused something the more than my thought of doing it preceded the actual action. Um, but my thoughts are consistent with what actually happens. And then the fewer possible other causes there are other than my thoughts, the more I believe that I caused it. So we'll quickly go over some of the data that led Wagner to argue that our sense of agency is much like the shots work on perceived causality. So in the 60s, Kornherbert and Dickey decide, uh, discovered that if you have people generate voluntary, uh, in their case, I think it was wrist flexions. If you have people voluntarily generate wrist flexions, that means just sit there and flex your wrist whenever you want. And then they measured activity in the motor cortex with EEG. What they found is that, in fact, about a second before you actually did a or did you guys discover, talk about this in class? Okay. <laughs> about a second before you did a wrist flexion, particularly the supplementary motor, motor area, becomes increasingly active, is that the brain's building up for the action. Labette then did an experiment, or published an experiment in 85, where he asked people to watch a clock as they, in his case, I believe it was making voluntary finger taps. And he asked them, watch the clock, make a voluntary finger tap whenever you want, and then tell me what position the clock was in when you had the conscious experience of deciding to press your finger, to tap your finger. So people gave him clock numbers, and then he measured when they tapped, measured activity in the brain, and he found out that in fact, they only became consciously aware that they were about to tap their finger 200 milliseconds before they tapped their finger, even though the brain had been organizing the finger tap for a full second. That was a huge controversy, led to a huge controversy, and it indicates that we're violating the priority principle. In other words, we're having a thought <coughs> 200 milliseconds before we're tapping our fingers, so it looks like the thought comes before the action. But in fact, we're finding neural uh, dynamics going on well before that. 
So this seems to violate the idea that we're actually, in, or that our conscious thoughts are actually what's making the voluntary finger tap happen. That's an example of the priority principle. In terms of exclusivity, Wegner et al. did an experiment <coughs> which they had people sit, in a com uh, sit at a computer with a uh, forced choice reaction time experiment, and then a confederate stood behind them and put their hands out and put their fingers just over the finger of the participant. And what they found was when the confederate was there with their fingers just over those of the participant, even though they never touched the participant's fingers, you found that when participants were asked to indicate how much control do you think you had over the choice and how much control do you think that other person behind you did, um, even though the subjects were accurate on the task 87% of the time, they attributed 37% of the influence to the person behind them, even though that person was doing nothing other than having their finger there. The exclusivity principle here then is that, wait a minute, there are these other fingers here, they could have cost it. And it's not even a conscious phenomenon, it's simply the perception of the experience and when there's another possible cause, it uh, decreases our sense that we're causing it, causing the action. And in terms of consistency, Lander and Roth found that people feel like they control chance events if they have previous experience successfully predicting the event. So in other words, as I, if, you know, if I accurately predict a chance event, the fact that the outcome is consistent with my prediction gives me more of a sense that I caused the outcome. So this is uh, Wagner's case, Wagner's series of arguments, that because our sense of agency is, is uh, susceptible to the Machat's uh, principles of perceived causality, conscious will is an illusion, because it's not what's causing our actions. However, my conscious will, this is me talking now, my conscious will cause something other than actions. What does culture think? Well, I'm assuming there might be some soccer fans in the room. I'm a big soccer fan. This is from the, uh, this is a shot on goal in a World Cup where the U.S. got as far as it's ever gone in the World Cup, playing Germany. Um, you can see the German defender obviously uh, keeping it, putting his hand on the ball to stop it from going into the, into the net. The ref has to look at that and decide did the hand play the ball, the ball play the hand. In other words, what the ref is doing is making a judgment about agency, right? And that is an extremely important judgment if you're a soccer fan. But many things are being controlled by that guy on the right at the same time. For example, he's keeping himself erect against gravity. Now, we may not think that's a big deal, but it's something he's actually doing. And if you have trouble with your vestibular system and you can't do it, you recognize it very quickly. So this system is continuously keeping itself in a relationship to gravity. He's also keeping himself in a relationship to the goalie, and in this case, a particular relationship with the ball. So limb movements are being controlled the whole time. But the limb-ball relationship is being controlled the whole time. So which of the two is culture more likely? to refer to as being involved in conscious will. The way the guy moves the arm, or what happens to the ball. And what I'm gonna argue is that culture believes that conscious will has to do with the relationships between thoughts and outcomes, not thoughts and actions. Culture doesn't even require an efficient cause relationship between thought and action. So for example, if you're arrested because someone you were around died, and there's evidence to indicate that something you did may have led to their death, 
after establishing that, in fact, this series of events did happen and that person died, the next thing you determine is, did you plan that outcome? The court doesn't care if you plan to move your arm a certain way. Everybody with me in that? And the degree of penalty depends upon the degree of prospectivity, right? So if it was an accident, you got hom negligent homicide. If you were in the heat of an argument and therefore lost your ability to specify outcomes, right, or constrain outcomes, then it's called second-degree murder. But if it's clear that you planned it in a cold light of day, then in fact, you're put in prison for the longest period of time. So the courts are not even interested in how your body moves. They're interested in the outcomes that your thoughts give rise to. And we're just gonna skip over this because I just talked about all that. So who's correct? Is, it, is conscious will about actions or is it about outcomes? I now want to take you to uh, a quote by my favorite psychologist, William James, and it'll provide the background for my point. I trust that I have now made clear what that idea of a movement is which must precede it in order that it be voluntary. It's not the thought of the innervation which the movement requires. It is the anticipation of the movement's sensible effects. And this is the part that I'm gonna cash in on. Resident or remote, and sometimes very remote indeed. So what William James is saying is that when I create a voluntary action, what makes it voluntary is that I pre-specify the effects that are to happen. And those effects can be resident in my skin. They can be remote in terms of the world in a soccer ball, not going in the net. Or they can be very remote, such as going to college for four years to get a degree. Those are all effects that we're specifying and working toward. So we're going to take this idea of sensible effects that James cashed in on. I'm just going to call it outcomes, right? And resident effects are those that have to do with controlling body effects, such as walking, swimming, and dancing. Remote effects have to pre-specify and sustain relationships with environmental events, such as keep the car on the road or keep the ball out of the net. Well, those are all effects that we can specify and make happen. Or very remote indeed, pre-specify and sustain relationships with abstract structures, such as thoughts. So for example, Chat with colleagues in Dublin on April 13th, 2017 is a thought I had a couple weeks ago, and it has completely constrained my behavior since. It doesn't cause how my body moves, but it completely constrains the problems my body has to solve from a moment to moment, from moment to moment, as I try to go through the world in a way that eventually allows me to have that chat or go to the Bahamas, right? So the question is, if we're gonna talk about voluntary action, or what we do is the control of effects. How do we control effects? <clears throat> One other thing I want to argue is that, I would argue effects is the medium of brain dynamics. So for example, this is motor cortex, and when we move our bodies in a particular way, uh, volleys of neural activity go from the motor cortex down to the spinal cord, and from, then the, from the spinal cord to muscles so that things move, we all know that. But this sensory loop from the moved limb back to the cortex takes about 100 to 120 milliseconds. About a tenth of a second is the, is the speed of that feedback cycle. Something that we're becoming increasingly aware of <coughs> um, is that the motor cortex not only uh, projects activity to the spinal cord, but it simultaneously projects activity to the cerebellum. And it turns out the cerebellum has three to five times more neurons than the cortex. Turns out that this, now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me explain this loop and then I'll go from there. Turns out that what's also 
innervating these cerebellar neurons are the afferents from the moved limb. So that when I move my limbs, because I'm generating these motor volleys, if you like, areas in the cerebellum are receiving what people like to call a command as to what to do, and they also receive what's called the effects. So you have these excuse me, command effect pairings that happen to the cerebellar neurons. And why does this matter? Because these cerebellar neurons project up, project back up to the motor cortex. This matters because this cerebellar cortical recursion occurs at a time scale of about 10 to 20 milliseconds. So it's much faster than the time scale of waiting for results from the environment. <clears throat> now this matters because this means that as long as the world stays somewhat the same over repeated movements, I can actually come to control my movement through these signals. So for example, as I'm um, I don't know. As I'm extending, reaching my arm out to grab the microphone, if you were to watch, you'd see my hand unfold in precisely the right position it needs to be in to grab the microphone. I have no conscious access to that happening. This is all being continuously primed by the way I've reached before and how it's constrained by the current context. And that, that past in, uh, constraint is coming from what's happened before. So because these uh, cerebellar cortical loops are so much faster, and we seem to use them to actually generate movements faster than the speed of actual feedback. People have given it different names. So Kawada with roboticists called it anticipatory motor error. Andy Clark called it virtual feedback to discriminate it from quote-unquote actual feedback from the environment. And then uh, biologists by the name of Pollen referred to it as, as dynamic state estimation. The point of this, estimation, virtual, and anticipatory, these are all words that sort of indicate getting ahead in the present based on the past, right? So it turns out now that instead of just the motor cortex having these sort of cerebellar cortical recursions, it's the entire cortex, all right? And this is one of the understated aspects of neuroscience. Almost every SF of cortex is recursively coupled with cerebellum. This means that at all time scales, the level we call action, the level we call perception, and the level we call cognition, the past is continuously fed forward into the present, what we refer to as prediction. So I'm going to argue that as we're tooling around talking to each other, or as I'm setting up here moving and talking around, not only is my cerebellum priming the cortex about how to move my body, the cerebellum is also priming the cortex in terms of how I move my thoughts. Then there are data to indicate it also primes the cortex in how I move my perceptions. Okay. So this means that we are continuously generating unconscious expectations out of the past, about the past, feeding them into the present, and we call them anticipations or predictions. Again, this means we're continuously generating this anticipatory backdrop against which events in the world can be foregrounded as stimuli, right? And this unconscious contribution that we continuously make to what we do is, one of, for me, one of the undiscovered territories of, of psychology. We do use the words assumption, we do use the word bias, and we talk about these things individually at the level of thought, the level of perception. What I'm going to argue is they're, uh, they are um, ubiquitous. <laughs> in our experience and actually provide a background 
against which um, things in the world can be meaningful to us. So then what I'm going to argue is multi-scale effect prediction, which some might call in strong anticipation, is a design principle of the brain. It's embedded in the structure of cerebellar cortical recursion. And controlling such effects simultaneously is what we do. So cashing out here, multi-scale effect control and William James, I can dance in the dark, right? And I will demonstrate that for you now. I'm sure you've all heard of the Macarena. I can do the Macarena with my eyes closed. Now that seems trivial, trivial, but my point is I can do the Macarena with my eyes closed, which means I can control resident effects quite well, and then I can embed the control of those res resident effects within a larger context. So for example, I can do the Macarena while I walk around the table. I'm controlling both events at the same time. I'm not just doing one thing. And then I can do all of that while simultaneously thinking about how nice it would be to have a partner. So I'm doing multiple things simultaneously, all of which are continuously being primed by what happened before. Um, so eventually, basically, um, my action systems then, my ability to control the effects my body generates with itself, and I can embed those in the larger time scale effect control of controlling events in the environment. I'm going to skip these slides right now. We can come back to them if you want to hear about that story. But what I, the point I wanted to end here on is instead of looking at human behavior as a single loop that has different psychological functions, perception, cognition, and action, I think, we need, I think uh, the, our theory is to be more compatible with our data and live life if we argue that what people do is control multiple effects simultaneously. Intentionality, then, isn't about being able to do something at one level. Intentionality is the inherent ability of biological systems to offset perturbation to system states. And attention is the ability of one level to constrain the other. We keep looking for attention as something that exists at one level. And we keep looking for intention as something that exists at one level. And uh, I argue intentionality permeates this entire hierarchy because it's our ability to pre-specify what should happen and then generate the work to get it done. So thoughts don't cause actions by efficient cause. Thoughts, thoughts cause playing loosely with the word cause. Outcomes indirectly by constraining lower level systems, not by making them do what they do. When I'm walking on the curb trying to keep my balance, I keep my perceptual system focused on the curb, keep that stable, and that then stabilizes what happens with the kinesthetic system, and it fights gravity. Not the perceptual system, the kinesthetic system fights gravity as I focus. If I suddenly start looking around, I'm gonna fall over. Okay, so the perceptual system is constraining what goes on in the action system, so then it can deal with the degrees of freedom it has to deal with at its level. And uh, priority, consistency, and exclusivity, <coughs> these aren't reasons to deny conscious will. But these do, what these phenomena do is reveal the temporal uh, relationships between different levels of event control. So I can feel like I cause things I don't. And I can feel like I don't cause things I do. And when we do the psychophysics, we'll find that what's happening is there are certain critical intervals between the relationship between thought and action where they're not completely coupled. Some things are happening at a larger time scale. And so there'll be windows where I won't sense exactly um, what... Uh, 
I won't experience the cause <coughs> in a way that we would call uh, right or wrong. Okay, so let me just quickly, that worked out all right. These next two bits aren't as long, uh, but it was important that I make a decent case for uh, the idea of multi-scale effect control and then make a decent case of why I think it might be important. <coughs> what we're gonna do now is talk about how we do it. The traditional metaphor for how we do our psychology stuff has been the computer metaphor, and uh, I'm gonna present a different metaphor. I'm gonna conceptualize organisms as self-organizing energy transformation systems. So I'm gonna spell out what that means for you here, uh, and then we'll go from there. So what you have here are two different depictions of the world, of the natural world, in terms of energy transformation hierarchies. So here you have the sun purposefully on the side in this image, giving rise to increasingly complex energy transformers until we get to the level of humankind here, being the quote unquote most complex energy transformer. Human thought being an example of energy transformation. Here we have Odom's 1988 science article, description of low quality energy, i.e. something unstructured like energy or less structured like the stuff that comes from the sun, being captured by what we might call plants, being captured by what we might call herbivores, being captured by what we call might call predators. And the, uh, what Odom did here was sort of sketch out the mathematics involved and how this energy transformation play, takes place from what they call lower qualities of energy to higher qualities of energy. So, it's self-organizing. What this means is that the dynamics you see in the system emerge spontaneously out of the system itself, that there is nothing outside of the system telling it exactly how it should be. Um, a hierarchy simply means that different levels of, the answer, uh, the different levels of this hierarchy, <clears throat> for example, let's just say the herbivore level, sustain themselves by capturing energy in what we call the plant level. And then now, instead of talking about us as being physical or mental systems, we're talking about us as being energy transformation systems. And this is an important maneuver. Because then we can talk about how stability can ever be generated in an energy transformation hierarchy. How does stability come to be? And the person I most often cite is Stuart Kaufman, who argued for the principle of autocatalysis. And the idea of autocatalysis is that chemical, uh, chemical interactions uh, emerge phylogenetically that were suddenly able to create their own catalysts. Now, this is important. If we look at a chemical reaction as an energy transformation, and that energy transformation produces its own catalyst, that means it's a self-sustaining energy transformation, right? The work of the reaction produces a product that feeds back into and sustains the work. Another way we, tend, we talk about this is in terms of uh, positive feedback loops, right? <clears throat> so uh, Kaufman goes on to say, he's not the only one. Varela said similar things. Um, but the idea is that living systems are self-metabolizing systems. And the, the language I try to bring to this then is that the work of being produces products that sustain the work of being. The reason I think it's important to conceptualize ourselves as energy transformers is because it never lets us forget the hard work of being a human being 
or a living system. Work is going on at every level all the time. And you'll see what I'm going to try to do is make a big deal about this idea of self-sustaining work. I'm trying to argue that psychological phenomena can be conceptualized as self-sustaining work. So let's look at phylogenetically how these systems come to be. Emergent systems such as plants, and I'm being simple right now and I apologize, but I, plants, for example, give rise to new contexts. So when plants emerge, it completely changes the energy context and that affords the emergence of other systems that can sustain themselves on the energy encapsulated in plants, right? And when those things that we call like herbivores come to be, they then create a context that affords the emergence of other energy transformers we now call carnivores, all right? Now the thing is, in order to be a herbivore, you have to embody the constraints necessary to capturing the energy in plants. So we can call herbivores whatever we want. What I'd like to do is have us look at them as embodiments of the constraints that need to be addressed to capture the energy in plants. All right? <clears throat> so in, the way I try to say this is the fuel source dictates the consumer. So if you're going to be a uh, system that uh, sustains itself on the energy encapsulated in a rabbit, you have to be a system that can capture a moving target. So you can think of <clears throat> carnivores as embodiments of the constraints that have to be addressed to sustain yourself on the, con uh, on the energy encapsulated in, in herbivores. So the idea is that energy or evolution is packing more and more structure or constraints into the dynamics of self-sustaining systems. And in our case, as these newly emerging systems evolve, it turns out that they are self-sustaining as well. Now, what I'm going to end up doing is not just talking about us as multi-scale effect controllers. I'm going to also start talking about us as multi-scale self-sustaining energy transformers. And it's through that energy transformation that we're able to sustain, generate these effects. And when you look at the hierarchy of which we are constituted, you'll find that different researchers have discovered this principle of self-sustaining work at different times and given it different names. So Donald Hebb argued that neurons that fire together wire together, right? And that is the idea of self-sustaining work. Data indicate now that when neurons generate action potentials, that work gives rise to transcription processes in the nucleus, which then recursively gives rise to um, synapse generation. So the work of being a neuron sustains being a neuron, all right? <clears throat> um, Edelman then developed this sort of theory for the development of the entire brain at the level of neural networks and referred to it as neurogenesis. And then B.F. Uh, Skinner discovered this principle at the level of the organism environment coordination and called it positive reinforcement. The idea is that when you do behavioral work, this gentleman reaching up grabbing an apple, that work ends up sustaining itself when he eats the apple. Now, Skinner called this positive reinforcement to account for the fact that these behaviors repeated themselves. But it's kind of a circular account, right? Because if they don't repeat themselves, then it wasn't positively reinforced. What we can say here is the reason something like positive reinforcement exists is because the work is giving rise to products that afford the continuance of the work. So we have three different people discovering the principle of self-sustaining work at different levels of scales at different periods of time. And uh, 
the work I do is an attempt to sort of bring these together and put them uh, in the same framework. And then Mark Bickard in 2001 wrote a very nice paper in which he talks about how these different levels of autocatalic work or self-sustaining work are actually uh, recursive, continuously constraining and influencing each other. All right? So now we're multi-scale effect controllers that do so by self-sustaining, the principle of self-sustaining work. Now, it turns out that one of the reasons some systems are very good at this is because the work that they do actually changes the context they're in in ways that continues to afford the work and actually affords members of a group to work together. So for example, ants, when they leave the nest in the morning, one of the things those ants are doing is laying down a, well, they secrete and detect pheromone. The type of pheromone they secrete is a function of the type of behavior they're engaging in a particular moment. So when they're all leaving the nest in the morning, 360 degrees, they're laying down a pheromone gradient. We don't think about it that way, but I'd argue that's what they're doing, is laying down a pheromone gradient. And as one of them finds food and follows the gradient back to the nest, they're simultaneously generating a different pheromone. That pheromone then gets other ants to turn in that direction. The point is now they're laying down a different gradient. So the, great, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is these ants then, <clears throat> being an ant works because you actually change the context within which you're being an ant. All right? Chickadees. If a female chickadee hears a mate lose a fight, and that fight is nothing but verbal calls, right? She's more likely to mate with the winner of that fight having never seen him. Now, we often refer to these bird chirps as information that they put out there. We, and I mean, that makes sense, but I think we can also talk about it as uh, birds generating an auditory gradient that contains all kinds of stuff we call information, distance, location, all kinds of bird emotions, trying to dominate each other, trying to find mates, etc. So the world they're living in is a world that they're partially creating and they're embedded in it. There's no way to escape it. They're not alone in it, right? They're continuously generating it, co-creating it, and by doing so, um, actually are able to sustain themselves more successfully. <clears throat> so, the fuel source dictates the consumer, and self-sustaining systems generate sustainment enhancing external contexts. Those are kind of two principles I want to take from this. When we go into the third section here, why does it have meaning? And the reason I want to claim that these systems are inherently meaningful is because self-sustaining systems can be thought of as embodiments of the constraints from which they emerged. In other words, my neuromuscular architecture or the neuromuscular architecture of a lion can be also thought of as the constraints that need to be embodied in order to capture a moving fuel source such as a zebra. So <clears throat> we can call it a lion, and we can give certain names to its parts, and we can assign certain functions to them, but we can also say, hmm, this is the embodiment of a zebra, of what it takes to capture a zebra. Therefore, I argue we can talk about living systems as embodied contexts. 
And the reason that's important for me is because if I can talk about an organism as being an embodied context, then there is no epistemic gap between an organism and its context. Organisms don't need information from outside of themselves to be meaningful. And they don't need to process information inside of themselves to give meaning to external things. The organism is an embodiment of the context from which it phylogenetically, ontogenetically, and socially, and dietically emerged. So there is never a point at which an organism is not about the context it's in. It's because of this, and believe me, it took a lot of years to try a lot of bad concepts to get to this one that I think is pretty good. Organisms are thus naturally and necessarily about the context they embody. Now, my meaning of the concept about here is quite different from the traditional Piercean triarchic relationship approach to aboutness. It's quite different than the phenomenological Husserlian approach to aboutness. My argument here is that there is nothing about an organism that is not about. There's nothing in an organism that is not referential. What we've done to ourselves over the past 200 years is, in, is demand that aboutness, uh, that we be able to specify uh, a signifier, a signified, and an interpreter that somehow we can parse out these triarchic relations so we know exactly what's about what. And what I'm trying to argue here is that there's nothing that's not about anything, right? And the reason that we are, have struggled for 200 years to imbue reality with meaning and try to find what's about what is because we came to believe that meaning was inherently meaningless, right? The naturalist view has led us to believe that there is no natural meaning and then somehow systems have to emerge that can generate relations that give reality meaning. I would argue one can believe that, but there's no necessary reason to believe it. And in fact, I'd argue there's nothing that's meaningless. All right. So I'm using the word about in a much different way than it's traditionally used, because I'm arguing there's nothing that's not about. There's no epistemic divide between the organism and its environment. Their internal processes, my digestive system, my lungs, my muscles, they are naturally necessarily meaningful because they are embodiments of all of this. <clears throat> now what happens over the course of evolution is that what we're about becomes increasingly abstract. And what I mean by abstract is that humans develop the ability to control events at increasingly large timescales. Now, the way we become able to control events at increasingly large timescales is by filling the world with all sorts of things that allow us to do that, like computers and calendars and textbooks and houses and all kinds of things. Just like the ants are generating a pheromone gradient, we too are generating gradients. I'm not sure what to call human gradients, right? Uh, I'll call them intentional context today, um, but we can discuss that. Um, but what, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. The point I want to make here is that what drove the increase in abstractness was the same hunt for energy that's always been going on. Now, if a system can become about events that are increasingly distal from itself and actually control its relationship to them, it will, able, it will be able to get more energy per unit work. 
much, for, much more efficiently than a system that can't be about or that control, cannot control those larger time scales. So the hunt for energy, the line has to propel itself on an anticipatory pursuit curve. And it has to propel itself towards the zebra's future. If it propels itself toward the towards the zebra's present, it will not catch it. And um, what I'm going to do now is talk briefly about what we externalize and, and then how that it gives helps us create the context we do. So it turns out the areas of cortex, I'm going to call it PF here. I'm not going to call it the field calls of PF. Becomes active during movement observation, um, regardless of whether or not there's a goal. Turns out that area F5 becomes active or be increasingly active during the observation of goal-related movements. Now, this is important because it means that when I reach out to grab this microphone, excuse me, when I reach out to grab this microphone, part of what it means for you to see me is that I actively, I actually generate the planning states in you that you would need to do this, but not just at one scale. For example, I could go like this and say, what the heck was that, All right? You resonate to me at the level of the goal, i.e. getting the microphone, and you resonate to me at the level of the movement that I used to generate that goal. One thing to keep in mind here <coughs> is not only are these cortical areas becoming active as we interact with each other, so when you see me grab the mic, I'm taking over for this part and this part and priming you to do these very same things, but as, I, as my interaction with you is changing dynamics in my cortex, my memories of what I've done before in these situations are also recursively priming my cortex. You're saying, Scott, what the heck are you talking about? All right, it's my high-tech demonstration for the day, so everybody pay attention. All right? Every one of you knows what I'm going to say. How many of you thought the word next? I mean, next, what other words did you have? Anyone? It, okay. My point is, check it out. Not only did most of you ex not experience me saying next, but it was in you that the word next was going to come out. You also expected that my voice was going to bottom out. You also expected that my hand was going to stop. So my point is, when I do that little demonstration, every one of you knows exactly what word I'm going to say next. When you expose yourself to me doing that, you're actually giving me the opportunity to prime your cognitions, to prime your perceptions, and to prime your actions. And we actually resonate to each other, and you experience me in terms of what I'm gonna do at all these levels. So you're not just experiencing me in a post hoc way, because the minute you let me prime this, you can just, faster than I can do anything, prime yourself in terms of what should come next. So why would you expect my voice to bottom up? Because that's how we've that's the prosody we've generated with each other when we ask when we in interact with each other. In other words, prosody is a sort of cultural tool that allows us to resonate with each other, and in a sense, contextualize and constrain our conversation. So I'd argue then that um, humans then find themselves coupled at multiple time scales simultaneously. And they're not coupled in a post hoc way. Because the minute you, I prime me, the minute you prime 
or I prime you or you prime me, we're already repriming ourselves with what's happened before. The famous study uh, from Calvin Marino et al, um, where uh, expert dancers um, watched two forms of expert dance, ballet or capriero, novices watched as well. And what you find is, is that you get more prefrontal activation in the observer to the extent that they can do what they're seeing. So I'm an expert ballet dancer, and I'm watching an expert ballet dancer. I get much more activation than if I'm a novice watching ballet. But if I'm an expert capriera dancer, I get less activation when I watch ballet than when I watch capriera. This is consistent with the idea that I can resonate to you to the extent I can do what you can do. And this, of course, explains why we have experts serve as referees for ice skating competitions or dance competitions. Because of what it means for an expert to watch someone is to actually allow that person to constrain their multi-scale planning. And because a lot of what I'm experiencing is being primed by my expertise, when there's a mismatch between what my planning would have done and what you did, you get a, you get a lower score. Okay. So it's almost essential we have experts um, do this because, in fact, they're not seeing you, they're resonating. So as we perceive others during multiscale entrainment, <coughs> the priming from the cerebellum renders the exogenously induced planning anticipatory. So we're priming ourselves as we get primed by others. Cumulative interaction episodes lead to increasingly prospective entrainment, and that's the idea that you can resonate to that which you can do. So, these multi-scale anticipatory mirroring or resonance, whatever we want to call it, is a design principle of the, of the brain. Um, and this leads us to see each other's in terms of multiple scales of planning. And these couple prospective systems become entrained as they mutually modulate each other's plans. So I would argue humans exist in them. This isn't the best concept, but humans exist in multi-scale, intentional, multi-scale planning contexts. <clears throat> so ants generate pheromone gradients. We generate planning contexts, right? And the reason that process continues is because it gets us more energy per unit work. I'm going to skip this. Um, I'm going to skip, no. So very famous researchers, very famous research by Horner and Mitten shows that if you have uh, young children and three and uh, three to four year old chimpanzee, chimpanzee, no, young chimpanzees and three to four year old children, if you model for them getting a piece of food at, in the bottom of this box, if you use the stick, of course, they can see that this using the stick at the top doesn't work. In this case, they can't see that using the stick at the top doesn't work. What you find is that young chimpanzees, in this case, won't put the, excuse me, in this case, young chimpanzees won't put the stick in the top, because it doesn't work. But you'll find that young children will put the stick in the top even though it doesn't work. And it's like, wait a minute, humans are supposed to be smarter than chimps, why would you waste your time? And the idea is that the reason is because we're super imitators. Now, why would natural selection leave us being so vulnerable to the dynamics of others. And I think vulnerability is an important point here. Why would evolution create a species that's so vulnerable
to its conspecifics. Well, in addition to making us slaves to fashion, it makes us excellent tool-used teachers. In other words, we can simply, when we're watching someone else do a task, we can say we're watching them, but I'd also argue that what we're doing is, art, is uh, uh, downloading the planning necessary to do this simply through observation, because to observe me is to be in planning states, right? So because we have this high fidelity ability to be vulnerable and therefore resonate to each other, um, we actually are able to teach each other things, very complex things, <coughs> simply through observation. Of course, it also makes us vulnerable to line dancing. So that's supposed to be a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Thinking, okay. But we're getting there. Okay. So what I want to argue is that our coupled in con intentional contexts have become increasingly abstract. So I like to start off with a little note here, comic. Caveman comes home from the hunt and says to his partner, I didn't actually catch anything today, but I feel I gained some valuable experience. Now, it's funny, but he's actually right, right? Because whenever he's out in the world tooling around, the mountain, the river, all of these things are consistently being paired with his being in the world, right? And over time, these things prime the actions in him that are necessary for success. So neural dynamics are coupled to repetitive body world dynamics. So the brain becomes a, some, somewhat an embodiment of the constraints we've continuously put it under. And then one of the interesting things about humans is instead of just secreting pheromone, we also secrete ideas. So we put abstractions of experience into the world. Now, just like a pheromone gradient or an auditory gradient allow other organisms to couple their actions, this allows us to couple our actions with each other in abstract space, what we might call the, the world of ideas or something along those lines. And of course, <clears throat> we then influence the states of other conspecifics so that externalized, we can call this abstract or virtual content, comes to be coupled with group intentional dynamics. And then we have these multiple scales of continuous recursion that have a positive feedback aspect of them that allows us to increasingly dominate context, get more energy per unit work, which feeds right back into the work of developing buildings, books, and the internet. So external contexts that we find ourselves sustaining ourselves in likewise become increasingly abstract. In other words, this street in Tokyo is not about any one human being. It's about all human beings and the potential interactions they might have access to were they to be in this area of the world. So they become about the, the couplings we humans can potentially generate and sustain, yet they're not about a particular individual. And one might argue that we've been living in abstract reality longer than we've thought, right? And we've been living in what I would call virtual reality longer than we thought. Not that it's virtual and meaning unreal, but virtual in the sense that it's incredibly abstract. It's about an increasingly large time scale, and it's about an increasingly large number of humans. So what do we do? We control multiple events at multiple time scales simultaneously. The concepts perception, action, and cognition may no longer be sufficient to deal with the regularities we're discovering in cognitive science. And they just may not stretch largely enough to get to be able to deal deftly with the regularities we're discovering. 
How do we do it? We are able to sustain effects at multiple timescales simultaneously because the very dynamics by which we do so are themselves self-sustaining. <clears throat> and then why does it have meaning? Self-sustaining systems are naturally and necessarily embodiments of context. They are knowledge. Knowledge is constitutive of what living systems are. Organisms only, the organisms do not need to be informed by the environment in order to be about the environment, for they are embodiments of that environment. The organism can modulate, the environment, excuse me, can modulate what an organism is about, but it does not imbue an organism with meaning, nor cause it to have experience. So given their sustainment requires the generation and sustainment of external contexts, pheromone gradients, auditory gradients, intentional contexts, these external contexts are constitutive of multi-scale sustainment. This is a cheap way for me to make the extended mind argument without using the word mind, right? These, these causal phenomena outside of us are necessary conditions of these abstract forms of sustainment. So instead of a science of cognition where we argue about where the mind is, I would argue a science of sustainment where we don't even need the concept mind is a way to go. As a result, the anatomy of multi-scale sustainment spreads out across these internal external couplings. The anatomy of human intelligence, conceptualized as virtual sustainment, spreads out across these other relative intentional contexts groups are able to sustain and generate. Finally, by approaching psychological functionality in terms of what I want to call the homology of self-sustaining work, meaning that the dynamics that allow a single cell system to be a single cell system are the same type of dynamics that allow us to be what we would call a multi-cell hypercomplex cognitive system. Um, so the homology of self-sustaining work that extends across these levels, the levels investigated by chemists, biologists, psychologists, anthropologists, and archaeologists, might be particularly well suited to serve as an integrative interdisciplinary framework for cognitive science and in some papers I've argued culture, you know. So, then, what about our drunken friends, right? What do we tell Pinocchio? Freedom is a gradient of constraint, ranging from proximal to distal to virtual strings of social constraint. The more free you are, the more abstract your constraints. Or the more abstract your constraints, the more free you are. In other words, if someone has you in shackles, then you cannot engage in the type of virtual event control, abstract event control, that you could if you weren't. But freedom is not about <coughs> no constraint. The mind as a self-sustaining energy transformation system, the mind is of nature, organisms are knowledge. And it's on our inability and our unwillingness to make those concepts be the same phenomenon that has driven our dualism and then our physicalism with a meaningless reality that we try to cram meaning back into with concepts like relations and such. And then the uh, Marlboro Man, the self as an embodied other relative virtual sustainment. In other words, the self, I didn't. I can say a little more about this if you want, but this phenomenon we call the self of who I am is an emergent byproduct of my persistent interactions with other human beings. And what I allow them 
to prime me to do and what I don't allow them to prime me to do. And my management of those social relations, in a sense, becomes a story of who I am. Thank you very much.